as uh, some of you might already be aware. <clears throat> On Friday morning, uh, Pastor G, uh, Timothy Keller went home to be with Jesus. If you're not familiar, familiar with, with Keller, um, he was the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, a pretty difficult place to plant. and was uh, a pastor there for a long time, a prolific writer. Some of uh, his most influential work for me uh, was the reason for God, the prodigal God, uh, the meaning of marriage. Uh, and his, his preaching uh, book is the one that is the, the foundation of the, of the class that I teach in the fall. Um, uh, he, he was uh, a significant influence for me, pastorally speaking. Um, <clears throat> he showed me how to see the gospel in all of Scripture, uh, how all of Scripture points to Jesus, um, and when you see that, you can't help but fall more in love with Jesus. <clears throat> now, I, I bring, uh, I mentioned this this morning, because most often what we hear about in terms of, 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 of mega church leaders, influential church leaders, is their downfall. We hear about their failure, um, whether that's their sexual sin or that's uh, how they mishandled money or uh, their domineering spirits that needed to be removed. Um, we don't often hear about the ones who finished well. And, and Keller finished well. He loved his wife and his family. He loved his church. And he loved Jesus above all else. He ran the race and he finished well. And I think that in that, <clears throat> there's a reason for celebration and for hope. To celebrate those who finish well, but but hope for us that we can finish well too. That empowered by the Spirit of God, if we would submit to Jesus, we can run this race. So with that in mind, would you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, <clears throat> thank you for Pastor Keller. Thank you for the way that you used him to communicate the gospel. The way that you used him to, to confront our culture to bring the truth to bear with so much love. Thank you for, for, for the life that he finished well. Father, we lift up his family to you. Father, I lift up Kathy to you this morning. Pray that you would comfort her. I pray for Redeemer Presbyterian Church. You would comfort them. The Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us boldness speak the truth. And Lord Jesus, help us to submit to you, the true king. It's in your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> um, start with a little bit of history this morning. This week, uh, in a conversation with Ryan, uh, he brought up something from, uh, from American history uh, and, and because I didn't uh, study well in my American history classes, I had forgotten about it, and so I needed to go back and, and, and relook at it. And, uh, and so I, I did, and um, th there's an, an event from, from, from our American history uh, that just before the Revolutionary War that the British came to know as uh, the unfortunate incident on King Street. We call it something else. Uh, but it happened in 1770, um, a little while before, uh, King George sent about 2,000 British troops to occupy Boston in order to force 
some tax laws that he had put into place. And in response to those tax laws and in response to a military presence, uh, people of Boston uh, were outraged. Uh, They took to the streets. There was some mob violence and there was some looting. Uh, They targeted uh, stores owned uh, by by loyalists, people who were loyal to to the crown. And, uh, And they targeted those stores. They looted them on one such occasion a customs official who didn't live very far uh, from, from a store that was being looted, saw what was going on, opened up his window, took out a musket, and firing through his window into the crowd, and his shot hit and killed an 11-year-old boy. Now, this, of course, incited more violence. And so on March 5th, a group of people surrounded the customs house, and it was being guarded by one soldier, one Private Hugh White, And there was an exchange of dialogue and words between them. At some point, um, White uh, lashed out with the end of his musket. It may have had a bayonet on it. Um, The the accounts, there's there's many of them, and they they don't all line up or all agree with one another. But uh, uh, he he, he lashed out with his his musket, and uh, the crowd only increased. Uh, Things began to get more and more tense. And then um, uh, Captain Thomas Preston led seven uh, British soldiers uh, to, to the customs house to take up defensive positions around it and, uh, and, and, and things just got worse. People began to throw rocks and snowballs and objects. Uh, one individual, he was a, a bookstore owner. Uh, his name was Henry Knox. He was only 19 years old, but he told the captain, he said this to, them, to him, for God's sake, take care of your men. If they fire, you must die. To which Captain Preston responded, I am aware of it. Here's where two individuals that, that understood that what we had was a tinderbox situation. That there was all the fuel that was necessary. There was a powder keg. And all that it would take for, for this to go off is somebody to light a match, essentially. This was an explosive situation. And so uh, somebody threw an object. It hit one of the soldiers. It knocked him to the ground. He dropped his musket. And upon standing up, he picked it up. He cursed and fired into the crowd, saying, Fire. Now, when this happened, there was a pause. And according to the account, accounts vary. The pause could have lasted a couple of seconds or it could have lasted upward of two minutes. But there was this pause. And then all of a sudden, it exploded. Someone with a club hit Captain Preston in the arm. And then, not simultaneously, but individually, they begin to fire into the crowd. There were 11 casualties. Five people died immediately. Three would eventually die of their wounds. More soldiers were dispatched. They, they formed a, a line around the state house, and the governor came to sort of quell uh, the mob. He was able to calm them down and disperse them, promising that justice would be met. And sure enough, Captain Preston and eight of his soldiers were, were arrested and tried later that year. That was what the British called the unfortunate incident on King Street. We call it the Boston Massacre. And both sides would use that incident and, and, and use it to fuel a fire that led to our Revolutionary War. Now, um, I, I bring this up not because you know, I, I'm, I'm arguing for defense, uh, uh, the, the revolution, but, but to point out something, that, that wars are often begun when explosive circumstances come together, they accumulate in one place, and all it takes is for one match to be lit to set the whole thing off. However, Peace can be maintained when the same situation happens and people refuse to light the match. I I use this as something from our recent history to help us understand something from our ancient history. 3,000 years ago, an army from the tribe of Judah 
sat across from a pool called the Pool of Gibeon from an army representing the tribe of Benjamin. And this was a powder keg situation. This was a tinderbox event. And all it took was for two people to set it off, and they did. And the result of it was civil war. Civil war. The place that that happened became known as Helkath Azurim. And that's Hebrew, and, and the best translation for that is field of swords. Field of swords. It's this, this picture of a hard-hearted sharpness. Field of swords. It's this picture of this, this obstinance. Hard-heartedness, piercing obstinance. And we'll see that put on display this morning. And I want to be, ask you this morning as we begin, basically two questions for, for, to sort of marinate as we walk through this passage this morning. The first question is, is does, does a field of swords exist in you? Is there a relationship? Is there a confrontation? Is there there's somebody that you are at odds with? Do, do you have a field of swords? And, and, and the second question is this, is, um, it actually comes from one of the characters in the story at the end of the chapter, and, and the question is, is, how long will the sword devour? In other words, how long will you let that conflict go unresolved? How long will you be in tension? How long will you be at war with that individual? How long? So we're in Second Samuel chapter 2. You can turn there with me. Last week we saw the death of Saul. Uh, Saul was God's first anointed king. Um, he, he failed uh, and, uh, and God chose to take the kingdom away from him. He anointed another king, David. But making that transition between one leader and another leader took God a very long time. Uh, God used that period in David's life to mold him and shape him through the pain and suffering he received from Saul. Saul knew that David was God's next anointed. He was jealous of him. He threw spears at him. He tried to kill him. And David spent 10 years on the run, hiding out in caves, living in the exile, until Saul dies. He dials on, 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 on Mount Gilboa, and, and David is 100 miles away at the time it happened. But David hears the news, and he does something really unexpected when he hears the news. He mourns. All of a sudden, the path to the throne is now clear. His tormentor is dead. He can come back from exile, but upon hearing the news of Saul's death, he mourns. And so last week, we looked at what does it look like, and how do we respond when, when God's leaders throw spears at us? How do we respond when, when, when leaders that God appoints do us harm, specifically in regards to church? We looked at that last week. This week, we're going to look at conflict within the church, conflict with one another that we have. Um, now, some of the things that, that we'll, we'll look at today, they might be helpful for situations that you might have maybe conflict that you might have with somebody who doesn't identify with Christ, who says they're, they're not a Christian. There might be some help there, but, but specifically, I, I want to target our, our conflicts within the church. And the reason for that is, one, that's the context of the passage. This is a civil war. This is God's people fighting against each other. Secondly, I, I want us to remind us that, that the world is looking at us, and they're not just asking, is Christianity true? They're asking if it works. And if they look at the church and they see a bunch of, of hard hearts bent on violence towards one another. And they ask the question, if God can't bring peace and unity with them, how could he do it with me? 
It's important that, that we as, as Christians take a hard look at our relationships and we make an end to these, these fields of swords. Uh, so let's dive into the passage. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives, also Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they all lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. As David laments uh, Saul's death, he gets to return from exile. And what we see him at the beginning of chapter two is he's, he's asking God, essentially, where should I go and live? And, and, and the way that we begin chapter two is he's asking God for direction. Uh, chapter three begins very differently. We'll see that next week. But here he's asking God for direction and, and God says, go to Hebron. And Hebron is significant for the Israelite people because that's where Abraham came and first built an altar to God and worshiped God there. And, and Hebron is identified with Abraham. And so for David to go to Hebron, he's identifying with Father Abraham, their patriarch, right? The, the, the one that God used to start it all. He's identifying with Abraham and in a way he's trying to identify with all of Israel. David wants peace and unity. He spent the last 10 years on the run. He knows war. He knows bloodshed. He desires peace and unity. He desires to gather God's people together and orient them toward God. That's what he, that's what he wants, peace and unity. And so uh, in an effort to bring that about, he extends the olive branch at first to a people called Jabesh Gilead or people from Jabesh Gilead who had properly cared for King Saul's body when, he's, when he died. And David sends him a message. And he says, so he says, you, you did the right thing. You honored King Saul. And you should have because he was God's anointed. But he's dead now. And you don't need to be loyal to him any, anymore. And he's, he's essentially inviting them, saying, I've been anointed king of Judah. I invite you to join with me. Well, they don't. Um, they're going to follow somebody else. Now, I think it's important to, to understand um, who all the players are. Uh, for the next couple of chapters that we're going to be working through. And, and so first of all, there is David. And, and David was God's anointed king. And, and we go back to 1 Samuel, we see Saul did know that David was his replacement. And there's one event where David's hiding out in a cave and Saul goes in there and David has the opportunity to kill Saul, but he doesn't. He refuses. He knows that God put Saul into place. It's up to God to remove Saul. It's not up to me. I won't raise my hand against God's anointed. But, but he confronts Saul, and Saul acknowledges this. In, in 1 Samuel 24, it says, I know that you shall surely be king. This is Saul to David. And that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Saul knew David was his replacement. And I'm willing to bet other people knew too. Jonathan knew I'm willing to bet that, that uh, his commanding general knew, his other sons knew as well. People knew that David was supposed to be the next king when Saul died. 
Uh, David is the, the king by divine right. The king by divine right. However, somebody takes a guy named Ishbosheth and makes him king. He's uh, the, the fourth son of Saul. Three sons died with Saul. There's a fourth and there's a fifth son we'll learn about later. But the fourth son, Ishbosheth, his name is actually Ishbal. It uh, means um, uh, a man of the master, a man of the Lord. But the, they call him Ishbosheth, uh, which is a nickname, and it's a negative one. It means man of shame. And, and he's a very passive individual. He's not in control of anything. In fact, he is taken and made king by somebody else. In other words, he's a puppet. He's a pawn to be used by somebody else. That's Ishbosheth. He's the king by hereditary right. Now, David promised Saul he wouldn't destroy his kids. He wouldn't kill his sons. So David's not going to, to, to harm Ishbosheth, but at the same time, he, he's not going to recognize uh, Ishbosheth's claim to the throne. Right? The third individual that's, that's important for this section is a guy named Abner. Abner was uh, Saul's commanding general. And, and, and he, he, he knew that Saul was to be king. However, um, when Saul dies, Abner finds Ishbosheth and he takes him and he makes him king because he's the puppeteer. He's going to be the one that pulls Ishbosheth's strings. He's going to be the one that's in charge. In, in, in Abner's mind, it is better to be um, a, a commander in, in the, 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 the opposing force rather than a lowly servant on, on the right side. He gets to be in charge, he gets to be in control, and he's going to try to rule Israel through this puppet king, Ishbosheth. Lastly, there's Joab. And Joab is, is David's commanding general. And outwardly, Joab is committed to the cause of David. Outwardly, he submits to David. Uh, remember, David, he wants peace and he wants unity. What we'll see in Joab is that he wants victory. He wants to win. And that's not the same thing. Outwardly submitted, but inwardly not submitted to the king. Um, in, in fact, uh, that's sort of the, the, the main point that I, that I want us to see uh, here this morning. And that is, God's people are identified as those who mutually submit to God's anointed king. That's how we're identified. Not as those who individually battle for our own agendas. Excuse me. People are known because of a common cause, a common hope, a common faith. That's what pulls them together. And who they turn to in order to have that hope and faith met and who they submit to, that's what makes you a people. However, we can also be identified by our own agendas. But God's people are identified by those who submit to his anointed king. That's the main point where we're going this morning. Uh, and it's important to understand that. So um, we see who the four characters are. Um, our, our main passage this morning is going to be verses 12 through 17. That's the powder keg. That's the thing that starts it all. But, but that's where we're going to come back to. Instead, I want us to see uh, right now, like, what happens immediately after the powder keg blows? What, what's the immediate result of that? What we see is a battle ensues. A battle ensues, and, and uh, the, the army of Judah goes against the army of Benjamin, and they fight it out. Um, Judah's army uh, wins, and, and the army of Benjamin, the army of Abner, runs. Um, Abner is running. He's fleeing from the battle. And Joab has a little brother named Asael, and he's really quick. He's fast. And he's chasing after Abner, and he's, he's not letting him go. Um, he's going to, to bear down on him. And Abner knows that if he kills Asael, he's going to have Joab to deal with personally. Things are only going to increase. Things are only going to get worse. But, 
but Asael is committed to, to, to killing Abner. And so what Abner does is he, he levels his spear, he puts the butt of it towards, towards his rear, and then he immediately puts on the brakes. And Asael runs into Abner's spears and impales himself on it and dies. Joab, of course, finds out. He begins to pursue Abner, and, and he finds him fortified on a hill with other members of his army. And we read this, verses 25 through 28. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. <clears throat> then Abner called to Joab, shall the sword devour forever? That's that question. Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from their pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. And I would clarify, they didn't fight anymore that day. This was the beginning of the civil war. You read uh, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. A day of bloodshed which incited a civil war that lasts a really, really long time. Um, this is an echo of something that points to Jesus and his arrest something that he says when one of his own disciples takes out a sword and hacks off a guy's ear. In Matthew 26, Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. We understand this, right? We understand what Abner knew and what, what Joab knew that day, what Jesus taught, that, that violence only begets more violence. We inherently know that, and yet we don't put our swords down. Why didn't they begin the day instead of end the day with these words? Why didn't, when, when they were facing off against one another around this pool in Gibeon, why didn't, at, at that point, did they say, will the sword devour forever? It was only after the explosion. It was after, after the carnage, after the, the war had been started, that they began to realize this. Well, let's go back to the, the, the powder keg, the tinderbox, what it is that actually started this. Verse 12. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanem to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side so that they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Azarim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of the Lord. So here's that tinderbox situation. Here's the powder keg. Uh, David is wanting to extend olive branches. He goes to Gibeon in order to, to speak to its leaders and try to unite the kingdom. Um, Abner uh, send, goes and, and, and brings his army to where uh, David's army is in order to thwart any sort of alliance. Now, David and Ishbosheth, they're not at the pool. 
of Gibeon. It's Abner and it's Joab who are in charge. And they're facing off against one another. One army on one side, one army on the other side. And so Abner has this idea. Let's play a game. Let's play a game. It's a a sick game, but let's play a game. The the word contest there, the root word for that is is laughter. It's the same root you find in the word Isaac, the name Isaac. It's it's laughter. It's, um, It's amusement. Let's play a game. And so they agree. And instead of the the game being one-on-one, it's 12-on-12. Each side sends out 12. Now, this is significant. 12 is the number of the 12 tribes of of Israel. And essentially what's being said here is, is this. We are the true descendants of Israel. We are the true sons of Abraham, and you're not. They're denying each other's identity, and each claiming to be God's people as opposed to the other side. And so they go out and they meet each other. I love allergy season. And what happens is they each grab one another. They grab each other's heads and they thrust their swords into each other's sides. Now you have to imagine this in your mind. Here's 12 guys from each side and they're going to meet each other to play a game. And there's probably some smiles on their faces. They're probably grinning at one another, right? We're just playing a game. And yet they grab hold of one another and thrust their swords into one another's sides. And then you have to see them lying on the ground. And what's the look? Surprise. I can't believe you did to me what I did to you. And what's interesting here is is that they couldn't find common ground. They couldn't unify in life. But the language shows they're unified in death. They fall down dead together. This is the picture of what happens there. As a result, both sides get up, go into combat. David's side wins. But that's beside the point. What happened that day set off the powder keg that led to a civil war. This is not what David wanted. This is not what God wanted. But when people who call themselves by God's name yet fail to submit to God's king and pursue their own agendas, the result is death. And that's what this passage speaks to. Helkath Azarim, field of swords. Do you have a field of swords? Is there an individual who you claim to be a, a, a child of God. You, you, you are a Christian, and they do the same. They claim to be a Christian as well. They are your Christian brother or sister. Is there a Helkath Azarim? Is there a field of swords upon which two Christians, and you're one of them, are doing battle, confronting one another? Now, we don't use swords. We use words. Proverbs says, the power of life and death are in the tongue. Do you have a relationship in which maybe you're smiling at one another? Maybe on the surface, everything's fine. But underneath, it could be a spouse. And maybe you're playing house together and you're really good roommates. But underneath, your relationship is broken. 
And you say that it's about money or you say it's about how you spend your time or you list a whole, list of, a whole bunch of other things. But in reality, what it comes down to is one or both of you don't have hearts that are truly submitted to God. It could be a relationship you have with somebody in your house church. And you come together on a weekly basis and you smile at one another and you share food, but underneath there's resentment and there's bitterness over something. Maybe it's a member of, of the church here at large. Maybe it's somebody in this room we can fight on the surface, on the surface on, or, or things like paint on the walls or, or programs or which leader is best to follow. Maybe that's what you think is on the surface. But underneath, what it is is a failure to submit to the king. Maybe it's somebody who's, who's not a part of this body. Maybe it's somebody who's a part of a different body. And maybe on the surface, you, you argue about secondary doctrines. But really, what it is underneath his heart's failed to submit to the king. Do you know that Christ wants unity amongst his people? He wants peace for us. But we're, for many of us, we're living on a field of swords. And the question is, is, how long will the sword devour? How long will it devour your relationship? How long will it devour you? How long will it devour them? And at what point does that powder keg that's, that's accumulating more and more tinder, at what point does that go off and your relationship explodes and there's collateral damage all around? You know, what we see in this, this passage is God pointing us to the way things shouldn't be. I think we see that a lot, especially in the Old Testament, where God presents us a story that is just raw and it's real, but, but it's a story that, that points us not to, to the way things God wants. You know, they're, they're not prescriptive of, of God's plan. They're actually descriptive of the way things are that are meant to get us to see that there needs to be a change, that, to, to get us to see what needs to take place and way, the way the things need to be. What we have here in, in 2 Samuel chapter 2, 12 through 17, is we have the anti-gospel. We have the bad news of what it looks like when we live in community pursuing our own agendas, unsubmitted to God. This is the anti-gospel. And yet, God uses it to point us to the true gospel. He uses it, and I'll get there in a second. But I think there's some things that we need to mine out of this and, and, and see and learn from. What does it look like when we fail to submit to the king? Four things takeaways from the passage. First, a failure to submit to God's anointed is a failure to be both inwardly and outwardly submitted. I think a lot of us go through life, and on the outside, we're quick to identify as Christian. <clears throat> we go to church, we pray, check the boxes. And yet on the inside, there are unsubmitted parts of our hearts. Heart, hearts that aren't completely submitted to Christ. There, there are areas in our life that are not completely given over to Jesus to reign and to rule. And there are fears within us and there are desires within us that we cling to and that we hold on to and we don't give them over. I mentioned that at the beginning of chapter two, uh, David asks God for direction. In chapter three, we're gonna see him in regards to his personal relationship with women and he's not gonna ask God nothing. Unsubmitted areas of his life that he won't turn over to God. And there will have bitter consequences. 
But the, the reality is, is in order for us to submit to the king, that requires submitting everything. Your fear, your desire, your relationships, submitting everything, not just outwardly. Secondly, failure to submit to the king results in a failure, failure to see people the way the king sees people. They crossed over that river or that, that pool and they looked at each other in the eye and they failed to see that what stood there was their brother. Now, interestingly enough, at the end of the day, after it was all said and done, you know what they're calling each other? Brother. But that morning when they met across the pool, they didn't call each other brother. They didn't recognize each other brother. What they were saying is, I'm a true son of Abraham and you are not. They failed to see the other the way that God saw them. In our relationships with one another, are you seeing that, that person standing opposite you the way that Jesus sees them? See, you were saved by grace. You were forgiven. You were given mercy. You were shown love. Didn't God do the same thing for them? Why is it that you, you believe that God, God died for you, but he didn't die for them? That Jesus saved you, but he hasn't saved them. To, to see that other person, the way that Jesus sees them, and he sees you for being righteous, but not a righteousness of your own. It's a righteousness that he gave for you, to you, for what he did for you. His righteousness. In those relationships, do, do you see them the way that Jesus sees them? Next. Failure to submit to the king results in the failure to to recognize that when you extend, what you extend towards your enemy is what you'll receive from your enemy. They're grinning at each other and they grab hold of each other and then they extend the sword. And a, and a look of, 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 of surprise is what takes place on their face. Wow, that you would do to me exactly what I'm doing to you. They extended the sword towards one another. We can expect that's what we should receive. What did Christ extend towards you and I? It wasn't the sword. It was mercy, and it was grace, and it was love, and it was forgiveness. What you extend toward them, that's what you could expect to receive. Maybe not always. We talked a little bit about that last week in regards to pain and suffering. Sometimes you'll extend the grace, and you'll get the sword in return. Do it anyway. Fourth, failure to submit to the king is a failure to choose peace over victory, to choose unity over winning. How important is it to you to be right? Is being right more important than being reconciled? How important is it to you to, you to win? Now, some of you might think I'm, I'm talking about compromising the truth. You know, pre pretending something isn't true in order to acquiesce to somebody else in order to maintain peace and unity. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about compromise. You know, I think one of the things that, that Tim Keller did best was he was able to articulate the gospel with so much truth and yet with so much love towards people that, that he could meet the, the, the fiercest opponent and, and not only would he, he not pierce them, but he would disarm them. And he did it all without compromising the truth. But let's be honest for a second. I'm willing to bet that that field of swords is not based on doctrinal issues. You're probably not fighting with somebody over the virgin birth 
or the Trinity, the nature of it, it's probably more along the things of your own agenda and theirs. That's what you're probably fighting over. Is it more important to you to be right than to reconcile? Is it more important for you to win than to see peace and unity in your relationship? Now, there's an interesting thing that this all points to. If this is the field of swords, what does that point us to? Where's the hope in all of this? One question you might ask is, if God's people are identified as those who submit to God's king, then who around the pool of Gibeon that day was, was God's people? The answer is none of them. None of them were. The truth is, is how many of us are? If we were to honestly look at ourselves, look at our hearts, and see the ways that they are unsubmitted, if we're identified as people who are completely submitted to God's king, how many of us are God's people? See, here's the hope. Hilkath Azarim, the field of swords, points to another place. It points actually backwards to something in 1 Samuel, to a place called Ephesdamim. Uh, this is, is a story in the Bible that you're actually all familiar with. Even if you didn't go to church, you know this story. This is a story of David and Goliath. This is a story of, again, two armies encamped over and against each other. This time, it's Israel versus the Philistines. And, and in this place, likewise, champions are called for. Representatives from each side are called for. And, and Goliath goes out from the Philistines, and he calls for a champion from the Israelites, and there's this bargain that's made. And, and the bargain is, is through one-on-one -on -one combat, victory and defeat can be determined for all. See, what we hear, see here is, is, is imputation. Impution is probably the more correct way of saying it. So what happens is Goliath comes forward and David comes forward. And you know the story. David uh, slings a, a stone, hits Goliath, and, and kills him, and he wins. David's victory is then imputed to all of the Israelites. They didn't lift a finger. They didn't do a thing. David secures a victory that's imputed to all of Israel. On the other side of that coin, Goliath, in his defeat, imputes that defeat to the rest of the Philistines. Tim Keller showed it. See, it points back. This field of swords points to a place called the edge of blood. That's what Ephesdemim means. But this actually points us to the place of the skull. And on Golgotha, Christ comes. The Son of God, taking on flesh, living a completely righteous life, goes and he sacrifices that life in our place. He dies. He absorbs the wrath of God for us. He assuages the wrath of God so that we now have peace with him. You see, on the cross, Jesus is both David and Goliath. Jesus secures the victory for us that's imputed to us. His righteousness imputed to us. But our defeat... Our failure, our sin, that was imputed to him. And he dies. See, all of this points to the place of the skull where God comes not to kill his enemy, but to die for his enemy. The gospel is not just a gift that you get to receive 
and therefore go to heaven. The cross is, is not just the place you receive grace and forgiveness. It's also the place where you go to be mentored and taught how to live. Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. Jesus at the cross sets an example for the life he intends us to live. We don't pick up our swords, we pick up a cross in our relationships. Will the sword devour forever? Not if you bring in the cross. The sword will not devour forever. If, if, your, if your field of swords can go to the place of the skull, if there you can lay the weapons down, we're going to close the message this morning by partaking of communion together. You can press those trays now. What we hold in our hands are symbols of, of the one true king who in submission to the Father gave over his body and poured out his blood. When we partake of communion, first of all, we partake of it in community. It's a mutual submission to the king. That's what we do together when we partake of it. Mutual submission to the king. But it's also a proclamation. It's a proclamation. We are a people who together submit to the king. That's what we're saying. We are a people together who submit to the king. We want what he wants. We see people the way that he sees people. We extend grace instead of the sword. We know victory looks like surrender and peace looks like laying our lives down. We are a people who together submit to the king. If you're in a relationship with a person who says they're a Christian and you say you're a Christian, do you together submit to the king? And it's time of communion this morning. If, 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 if that's, that's not true of you, if you're living on a field of swords, if there is somebody who is an adversary and your hand is grappled around their head and their hand is grappled around your head, you're living in a tinderbox and there's a place that it's about to explode on you and this relationship is about to be destroyed, that it's time to make the field of swords the place of the skull. And it's time to go to the cross. And it's time to go to Jesus. In a moment, I'm going to pray. I ask you to partake of communion when you're ready. I'll challenge you with this. If there's a field of swords, before you partake of communion, which proclaims what we just said it proclaims, would you go to that person? Would you forgive that person? Remember, this is mutual submission. You can't make that other person put down their sword, but you can put down yours. As far as it depends on you, be at peace. Consider before making this proclamation that you are a submitted to the King Jesus. But go and deal with them. Maybe they're in this room this morning. Maybe you don't have to go very far because they're sitting right beside you. But will you lay down your sword?
Lord Jesus, thank you for showing us a better way. The options before us are not to follow Joab and Abner. We can follow you. Your cross is not just that which saves us. It's our example. It's our direction in life. It's, it's the way we're supposed to go. But it also sets us free. I pray this morning for, for people who, who have these kind of conflicts that, that are, are headed towards blowing up. Relationships that are headed towards death. And I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would show us what you did for us. Because of what you did for us, we can lay the swords down. Help us to look to you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.